text for this afternoon's service is Psalm 94 and is summarized in the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 4. Let's read our confession together. Lord's Day 4 on page 520 of the Book of Praise. Question answer 9. But does not God do man an injustice by requiring in his law that man cannot do? No, for God is so for God so created man that he was able to do it. But man at the instigation of the devil in deliberate disobedience robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. Will God allow such disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished? Certainly not. He is terribly angry with our original sin as well as our actual sin. Therefore, he will punish them by a just judgment, both now and eternally, as he has declared. Cursed be anyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Galatians 3 verse 10. But is God not also merciful? God is indeed merciful, but he is also just. His justice requires that sin committed against the most high, majestic of God also be punished with the most severe, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. The sermon for this afternoon was prepared by Dr. Jason Van Vliet, a professor at our theological seminary. After the reading of the sermon, we will respond with the singing of Psalm 32, verse 1 and 2. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, we have come to the end of the first section of the Catechism, which is about our sin and misery. The end of this first section, already. It seems like we just started. And yes, the first part of the Catechism is only three Lord's Days long. Now that does not mean that after today, we are all over and done with the topic of our sin. If we read through Lord's Day 5, you will see that our sins are mentioned a few times. And in Lord's Day 6, the topic of our sin surfaces again. And again in Lord's Day 7, we will see the word sin. In fact, this trend continues right up to the very last Lord's Day, Lord's Day 52, which deals with temptation and the spiritual warfare. So even though we are at the end of the first section of the catechism, we're not done dealing with sin yet. For that matter, are we ever done dealing with sin in this broken life? But there is something else at stake here, and that is, that is the tone, the tenor, and the over, overall thrust of the Word of God Very close to the beginning of the Bible, the misery of sin is introduced and exposed. Genesis 3 comes right to the heart of the matter, and the fall into sin is described. But then, very quickly, in fact, already in Genesis 3, verse 15, the beginning of the good news of salvation is introduced. And you see the catechism wants to follow that inspired line. Does it deal with sin? Yes, absolutely. Does the catechism brush over it lightly? No, not at all. But just like the word of God does, 
so also the Catechism wants to introduce the good news of our deliverance from sin as soon as possible, namely in Lord's Day 5. You could put it this way. Come to grips with the greatness of our guilt is the door through which you must go in order to enter the house of salvation. Now on the one hand, you should not stand there, stuck in the doorway of sin and misery forever and ever. The idea is that you walk on through into the house. So please, do come in out of the cold. But the other side of the coin is, if you want to enter God's house of deliverance, then you must enter properly through the front door. The Lord will not allow people to go to sneak in by climbing through the side window or anything like that. No, you have to honestly and humbly walk in through the front door, that door which is called admitting that my sin and misery is very great. And this is what Lord's Day 4 is all about. It's about making sure that we actually walk through the front door of repentance and making sure that we do not attempt to somehow avoid it. I bring you the word of God summarized as follows. No excuses, no evasions, just repentance. Don't say in your heart, it's too hard for me, or I can't get away with it, or there's always forgiveness. The first and most basic command which the Lord requires of us is that we must love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our strength, and with all our mind. And no sooner, sooner do we hear that command and our first inclination is to say, that's impossible, I can't do that, that's way too hard for me. And added to that, the Lord already knows full well that we cannot do it, doesn't he? Look, for instance, at what the Lord says in Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thought of his heart was only evil all the time. Well, that being the case, obviously the Lord knows that we cannot keep that command to love him perfectly. So then why does the Lord still require it of us to do it? Isn't that unfair? I mean, you cannot expect a cow to fly, can you? And you cannot expect an eagle to go swimming around deep down in the depths of the sea, can you? So along those same lines, uh, along those same lines you cannot expect sinners like us to love God perfectly, can you? Now when you think about it, it is a bit disturbing how often we use precisely this kind of thinking to let ourselves off the hook. For example, the Lord says in his 10th commandment, you shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. But then we think of to ourselves, yes, but that's so hard. In fact, that seems too hard because other people have all those nice and wonderful things. They have a nicer job than I do. They have a newer home than I do. They have a nicer car than I do. And yes, I know that the Lord says about coveting, so I'll try to keep it to a minimum. Surely the Lord will be pleased with that, so long as I try my best. This is the way we often think. Or for an example, the Holy Spirit says in the opening verses of James chapter one, consider it pure joy, my brother, whenever you face trials of various kinds. And we say, yes, but that is just so hard to do. It's too hard to do. So the Lord cannot really and realistically expect me to do that, can he? And there we go again, 
conveniently letting ourselves off easy. And yes, there are many other difficult commands of the Lord that the Lord gives us, such as flee away from any sexual immorality. That's pretty hard to do in a society where you are regularly bombarded with sexual suggestive ads in newspapers or on TV shows. And so, taking up Taking all this into consideration, we nicely come to the conclusion that God's standards are simply too high for us. And in our minds, we drop God's standards down to the level that we are comfortable with. And we comfort ourselves with the thought that so long as I try, I'm trying my best, what more can God possibly ask of me? In other words, basically, what are we doing? What we are doing is putting question six in slightly different words, but does not God do, do man an injustice by requiring his law, what man cannot do? Do you see what's happening here, brothers and sisters? We are turning the tables on our Lord and Savior. After all, we are the ones who have sinned. We are the ones who have gone, who have done a grave injustice to the holiness of our God. But now, in question six, we are trying to reverse the charges and say that somehow God is is at fault here because he is not being reasonable enough. But truth be told, this whole idea of reversing the charges on our Lord, this is nothing else but an excuse. It is simply an evasion tactic on our part. And no matter how good it sounds or how much we would like it to sound good, the fact of the matter remains, this excuse is just plain wrong. Earlier we said, you cannot expect a cow to fly, and that is correct. It is correct because the Lord did not create cows with wings. The Lord did not create cows with the ability to fly. But, and this is precisely the point, the Lord did create human beings with the ability to love him, with all their heart, with all their soul and mind. So bringing back into our minds how beautiful the Lord at first created us, then we must also admit that the Lord is not being unfair when he asks us to do the very thing that he created us to do. That is, perfectly legitimate and reasonable. There's nothing unfair about it. Yes, but maybe you are saying to yourselves, Yes, but we are no longer the way we once were. Sure, Adam and Eve were created in the ability to love God perfectly, but now we are conceived and born in sin and we cannot do it any longer. And of course, there is truth to that. But but brothers and sisters, let's not take that as an excuse to turn the tables on the Lord our God and to excuse him or to accuse him of an injustice. Consider the following. Let's suppose that there is a very rich and generous man who has one son and five grandchildren. Now at a certain point in time, this father gives his son an enormous sum of money and he says to his son, put this money in the bank, invest it wisely, and then you and your children will be able to live comfortably for years to come. But in the next day, a few of the son's friends come along And they say to the man, come, let's spend all of that money that your father gave you. We can buy fancy cars and travel to exotic locations. 
Now, sad to say, but this particular son listens to the idea of his foolish friends. He squanders all his money on vehicles and vacations. And by doing that, he not only robs himself of good, solid income, but he also ruins things for his wife and his children, and even his children's children. It's sad and a miserable story. But one thing should be absolutely clear to all of us. There is no reason whatsoever to start blaming the generous father. He did not do anyone an injustice. He did not do his son an injustice. And for that matter, he did not do his grandchildren an injustice either. So let's keep the blame precisely where it ought to be. And just in case we start thinking about thinking now, that it's all Adam's fault or that it's all Eve's fault, let's turn for a moment to Deuteronomy 30. And we start in the middle of verse 9 of Deuteronomy 30 where the Holy Spirit says, The Lord will again delight in you and make you prosperous just as he delighted in your fathers. And then notice verse 10. If you obey the Lord your God and keep his commandments, commands and decrees that are written in this book of the law, and turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. So here once again is that high and holy requirement of the Lord. And just before we protest and say, yes, Lord, but, we're, but that's too hard for us. Just before we say, we say that, look at what the Lord says in the very next verse. Now, what am I commanded, commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. Yes, but how, Lord, we say. And in fact, the Lord has already anticipated that question back in verse 6 in Deuteronomy 30, where he says, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. And since baptism has replaced circumcision, today we would say, Yes, we are sinful. But only the same, but on the same token, the Lord has already promised to work in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit is the one who definitely can enable us to love the Lord. So really, what excuse, what excuse do we have left? God gave our first parents, Adam and Eve, a perfect, holy, and righteous heart. And sad to say, they still stubbornly went ahead and disobeyed the Lord anyway. And now the Lord has even been so gracious as to give us the mighty and powerful work of the Holy Spirit. And there are still many times when we stubbornly go ahead and disobey. And seeing now clearly just how much the Lord has graciously done for us, we still dare to come before our God and say, sorry, Lord, but this is just not fair. These commandments are just too hard for me. Do we still dare to have think, dare to think or talk along these lines? Brothers and sisters, shame on us. How dare we point an accusing finger at our gracious God and even so much as suggest that he is the one at fault in all of this. The problem is not that the Lord is doing an injustice, the real problem is that we simply don't want to do it God's way. Rather, we want to do it our own way. The problem is with our own sinful desire and inclination. 
And that's why John the Baptist called out, repent and believe. That's why the Son of God, our Savior, preached the same message, repent and believe. Don't blame God for your guilt. Don't blame Adam and Eve for your sin. And don't shove things off into the devil, onto the devil either and say, well, that devil, that devil made me do it. Sure, the devil tempted us, just like those foolish friends look to the sun. Come on, let's spend that money on fancy cars and exotic boat cruises. Surely foolish, foolish friends or even the devil himself may tempt. But that doesn't take anything away from the fact that when we sin, it is we who actively and consciously do the misdeed that we do. So don't blame So don't go blaming anyone else. We only have ourselves to blame. So no excuses, no evasion tactics, just genuine repentance. Because heartfelt repentance is the front and the only door into the house of God's salvation. The only problem is that our devious, depraved hearts do not give up quite that easily. Okay. By the grace of God, we may come into the point of acknowledging that we only have ourselves to blame. But, whispers our heart, maybe God will not pay close attention to my sin and will not punish me. It's something like the student who deliberately decided not to do his homework. And then off he goes to school, hoping that his teacher will not check up on him and therefore he will not punish him. Is that the way that it might be with the Lord our God? Is the Lord too busy taking care of everything else in creation that he does not have the time or the interest to notice our sins? Well, the short answer to the question is no. And in Psalm 94, the Lord completely destroys those false and flimsy hopes. Even though the psalmist is speaking here about the unbeliever who who are oppressing God's people, The same basic truth applies to us as God's people, just as much. Verse eight, take heed, you senseless ones among the people, you fools, when you come, you become wise. Does he who implant the ear not hear? What do you think, brothers and sisters? God created our ears. God even created sound itself. And what do we think? Do we think that the the creator of sound is himself deaf and that somehow he does not hear us when, for instance, we are gossiping about someone else? What do we think? Does the Lord not hear when we mutter, mutter away under our breath in our anger and frustration? Of course he hears. The creator hears. The creator of the ear hears every last syllable that our sinful tongue utters. And what do we think? Do we honestly think that the Lord who fashioned and formed our eyes cannot himself open the eyes, sorry, that formed our eyes cannot himself see the sin that was committed? Maybe other people cannot see them because you do not, you do them often a dark secret corner somewhere. But make no mistake, God sees, God knows. And God does not turn a blind eye to think that Think, God does not turn a blind eye to things that are displeasing in his holy sight. And this too is brought home to us in one powerful and penetrating question. 
Psalm 94, verse 10. Does he who disciplines nations not punish? Babylon was a proud and arrogant nation. The Lord disciplined the Babylonians. They were destroyed by the Medes and the Persians. The Lord disciplined the Egyptians for all their cruelty. And the Lord punished Edom and Moab and Cush and the whole long list of other nations. Just read through the prophecy of Amos. Anyone who has a Bible knows that our God is certainly not, the, not in the habit of sweeping sin under the carpet. On the contrary, he is terribly displeased with sin. And yes, he also, punish, he also punishes sins. He punishes sin already here in this life. For instance, just look what happens to the people who fall in love with money. The Lord punishes them with the spirit of discontentedness. Once a sin of greed grabs hold of your heart, then more is never enough. And you end, living, you, you end living out your life always wanting more, but never having enough. That is a punishment or a consequence for the sin of greed. The Lord also says, flee sexual immorality. But many people today do not listen to that. And look what happens. Because of sexual sins, our society is groaning under the misery of broken homes, broken marriages, broken families, not to mention the plague of sexual diseases that are running wild among those who decide to ignore God's call of chastity. And brothers and sisters, let's not be so foolish as to think that just because we are God's people that somehow we can go right ahead and sin without having to face the consequences of those sins. And taking this a step further, let's also make sure that we realize that the Lord is so terribly displeased with our sin that if there is no heartfelt repentance for the sin in our life, then the Lord will punish unrepentant sinners after this life eternally in the anguish and anguish of hell. Now, by and large, people do not want to talk about the punishment of hell. In fact, it is quite fashionable these days in the world of theology to teach that the punishment of hell really does not exist. Today, there are many authors and theologians who say hell is really just a state of mind here in this present life. Well, indeed, there are many pretty hellish sufferings that some people have to go through here in this life, but that is not what Jesus Christ is speaking about when he says that at the end of time, the angel will come and separate the wicked and the righteous. And those who are righteous in Christ will be taken into heaven. But those who insist on staying in the wickedness of their unrepented state, those the angels will throw the, wick, the wicked into the fiery furnace of hell where they will be weeping, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth These are the words of the Son of God himself in Matthew chapter 13. This is not some kind of fantasy that Jesus Christ is speaking about. This is not some kind of fiction story that is nothing less than the full truth of how terrible displeased God is with sin. And brothers and sisters, we will not truly understand the greatness of our sin and misery unless we understand that because of our crimes against God's holy majesty, we deserve to languish forever in the agony of hell. 
Our sin deserves to be punished with eternal, everlasting agony. That's how bad our iniquity really is. You know it used to be that the topic of hell received a lot more attention in the preaching that came from the pulpits. Not to be sure that kind of preaching can be overdone as well, just think of Jonathan Edwards' famous or infamous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. In that sermon, Edwards describes the horrors of hell in graphic and gruesome detail. That way, that may, be, that may well be overdoing it. After all, God's holy gospel is not a message that is supposed to scare us out of hell and into heaven. We are called to believe into salvation, not to be scared into salvation. Nevertheless, we can just as easily push the holy indignation of the, of the Lord our God off to the side and never speak about the punishment of hell at all. And that would be equally wrong. Hell should not dominate the gospel, but hell should not be de- deleted from the gospel either. For lest we think that God is not serious about sin, listen to what he says in Galatians chapter three. Cursed is everyone, yes, that curse, that cumulative in hell itself, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And being sinners ourselves, we certainly deserve the punishment of that curse as well. And there is no excuse and there is no evasive tactic that will allow us to slip, our, slip out from underneath that. True repentance means coming out coming to grips with the fact that your own sin, sins are so great that you deserve hell. Oh yes, but we quickly want to add, the Lord is a kind and compassionate and merciful God, is he not? Yes, we know that we, know that we are terrible sinners, but there's always forgiveness and surely God will graciously, graciously be gracious and forgive. And surely in his mercy, God will punish us in the way that we actually deserve. Isn't that true? Well, yes, that is all true, brothers and sisters. Absolutely and wonderfully true. But it makes a big difference how and why you say that. If the attitude of your inner heart is, oh, I do not want to worry about sin. After all, it's really not a big deal. Because look, we can always appeal to the Lord for forgiveness anyway. If that is your attitude, then you are using the mercy of our God as yet still another evasive tactic so that you do not have to walk through the door of genuine repentance and the scripture, and for that matter, the catechism will have nothing to do with that kind of attitude because this don't worry about your sin because there's always forgiveness attitude. That attitude is completely misguided about the Lord our God about who the Lord our God is. Brothers and sisters, our God is not made up of different parts. Some people make it sound like the Lord has a merciful part to him. And then in addition to that, the Lord also has a just or disciplinarian part of him. But in the end, the merciful side of God will win out over the justice side of God. That's always how people talk somehow, sometimes, but that's not not who God is. Deuteronomy 6 says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. God is he. God is not a collection of different parts. He is perfectly merciful. 
he is also perfectly just. He is mercy, and his mercy does not cancel out his justice, and his justice does not cancel out his mercy. Rather, both are completely and simultaneously fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And all thanks be to the Lord for that, but that, a topic for, that, but that is a topic for another Sunday. That is a topic of our next section of the Catechism. The point right now is simply this. The house of the Lord's salvation is a wonderful and glorious place to live. However, we must, we must, walk through the front door of real, genuine, heartfelt, and contrite repentance. Please, no more excuses. No more evasion tactics. No trying to climb in through the side window. No, just enter through the front door of humble admitting before God you are a sinner and that your sins are great and numerous. So brothers and sisters, have you confessed your sins to your God? Or are you still trying to cover them up? Trying to ignore your iniquity does not solve anything. It only makes matters worse. Confess, repent, and in this way enjoy true and lasting relief from the crushing weight of all your guilt. Amen.